This is Think It Through with me, April A. Bear. Get ready to start thinking. I know, it's hard, and you'd probably rather not. But here we go anyway. Hello, I'm so glad you're here. If you just found this podcast on your favorite platform, I recommend that you go back and listen from episode one, because I do refer to things I've discussed in earlier episodes, and I don't want you to get confused. So let me just remind you what we've been talking about in episodes one through four. We've talked about some of the things that can get in the way of clear thinking, like mental shortcuts and cognitive biases, arguing past each other, fallacies, and not being charitable to others during arguments. Remember, bad arguments can persuade us even though they don't actually prove or support the conclusion because our brains are just funny that way. Recognizing those things when they occur takes time and effort and a lot of deliberative thinking on our part, but it is possible to become more thoughtful about the way we think and how we interact with others. In this episode, we're going to examine our beliefs and values, the moral foundations from which they spring, how that can get in the way of having a civil conversation with someone, but also how they can actually help us to connect with others and open a dialogue with them. Before I get too far into the episode, I want to let you know that in no way am I making excuses for people's negative behaviors here. Explanations of why people think and do things are not excuses or justifications. What I am going to do today is talk about one of the theories that explains why people come to believe particular things and possibly act on those things, not to convince you that something you don't think is right is right. I'll try to give you some information that will help you understand where people who think differently from you are coming from. You're still free to think that the ideas and behaviors of some people are incorrect, but at least you're going to have some inkling of those people's humanity. And if we can't see each other as thinking, feeling humans with concerns and hopes for the future, humanity could have a very rocky future. That's how important this is. Also, I will be talking about politics, but not to espouse a particular political viewpoint. These days, our political beliefs are a major part of our identities, and how we define ourselves springs in large part from those beliefs, and those beliefs spring in large part from what we value as individuals. So we really need to see how we've come to align ourselves with a particular party. It's true that we tend to align ourselves with those who have similar values and beliefs and see those who do not as, well, let's think about how we think about those people. What do you think about people who don't hold the same beliefs, values, worldview as you do? Do you immediately label them, have certain ideas about them? To your mind, are they just wrong? Maybe dangerously wrong? Maybe even, dare I say, evil? And I'm not just talking about the leaders of countries or religious leaders or thought leaders like news pundits. I'm talking about how you label regular people who espouse a particular viewpoint with which you disagree. Are they stupid, awful, horrible? I want you to remember when we talked about the fundamental attribution error, where we attribute what we perceive as negative behavior in a person to some kind of character flaw in that person, rather than considering the many other reasons why they might behave that way. That definitely comes into play here, and it causes us to feel superior to them. 
but you're just not superior to them. I'm not, you're not. What if I told you that those people you despise have a lot in common with you? We are far more alike than we are different. Barring any short-term or long-term psychological instability, which can really mess with your metacognition, or some kind of mental illness like sociopathy or psychopathy, and frankly, none of that is in my wheelhouse. I'm talking about people like you and me who are just trying to get through the day in one piece. Anyway, we all tend to have beliefs and take actions that we've determined are correct and justified. Those beliefs, values, and actions come from a set of morals. And guess what? All of us are working from the same basic set of moral foundations that we've all agreed for millennia are important. However, we might define them differently and think that some of them are more important than others. Jonathan Haidt, author of The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, explains that there are six different foundations that we use to view the world. I'm going to list them here, but I'll also link to some websites that focus on them, and you can go and read for yourself what they're about. Height labeled these foundations to reflect their moral opposites, so each of them is labeled with a good side, bad side of that foundation. The first one has to do with how much we care about people other than ourselves. It's called the Care Harm Foundation. We generally believe that we should care for others and keep them safe from harm. The most basic illustration of this foundation is that we tend to do everything we can to keep our own children safe from harm, and pretty much everyone can agree with that. It's our basic genetic survival mechanism. But it also means that we consider our society important enough to make sure that the majority of people within it are also kept from harm. Those who think this foundation is more important than other foundations might think that it's our job to try and keep everyone and everything in the world safe from harm, while for others, they may not see that as their job at all, unless it's for people in their tribe or family. So everyone thinks this foundation is important, but they differ in its interpretation. The second one has to do with equity. It's called the Fairness Cheating Foundation. We believe that people should both be treated fairly and treat others fairly, and that cheating either to get things or to avoid things isn't good. Those who think this is a more important foundation might believe in equality for those who have consistently been treated poorly, because they think that some groups have an unfair advantage over other groups. However, there are people who think that nobody should get special treatment simply because they're from a historically underserved group, and they think that is cheating rather than leveling the playing field. So you can see how people interpret this foundation differently. Again, pretty much everyone believes it's important. The difference is in how it's interpreted. The next one is the Authority Subversion Foundation. We generally believe that tradition and institutions are good and that attempts to undermine them are not good. Humans really came into power in the world by creating societies, and societies have rules that if the majority of people don't follow, it can weaken or destroy that society. And we intuitively understand hierarchical relationships, and we generally give respect to those whom we see as having authority over us. So things like disobedience and disrespect are seen as very bad to anyone who holds this foundation above the others. There are people who think this foundation is more important than the first two, and there are others who don't think it's as important at all. 
A fourth foundation has to do with how strongly we rely on groups. It's called the Loyalty Betrayal Foundation. We use in-group loyalty to help us know where we fit in. And many people believe that those who do not stick with their group are somehow betraying that group. Tribalism is innate in humans. It's how we survive to create societies. And those who put this foundation high on their list consider their group or team to be an important part of their identity, giving them a sense of belonging. And that competition with other groups or teams is equally important. So there's a lot of hooray for us, we're better than you kind of thing going on with people who put this foundation high on their list. Number five is the Purity Degradation Foundation. We generally believe we should keep ourselves clean. For most of us, that means physically. For many others, that also means moral cleanliness. In fact, the more religious you are, the more likely you are to consider purity to be a very strong moral foundation. Also, it means we should avoid things that could be seen as unclean or taboo and possibly cause harm to us. Obviously, it's in our nature to avoid pathogens or parasites that could kill us. And we tend to see these things as not just harmful, but often disgusting. Like rotting meat is disgusting and we don't want to eat it because we know it will probably make us sick. Disgust is a very powerful emotion. And the things we find disgusting are often more mental than physical. Would you wear a sweater that had been worn by a serial killer? No. What if it had been dry cleaned first? Most people would still say no, even though a sweater by itself is not innately disgusting. It's the idea of who wore it that's disgusting. So if you think this foundation is a very important one, your list of what's disgusting is probably a pretty long one. The last foundation was added to this list later when the researchers realized its importance. The Autonomy Oppression Foundation is the belief that authority is only legitimate in certain contexts and that the wrong kind of authority causes oppression. Libertarians in particular feel this is a very important moral foundation. The individual is the most important unit in a society, and government can be problematic when it seeks to control in a way we feel is unjust. Of course, other political persuasions see autonomy, the right to have a say in decisions that affect us personally, as important. It's the kind of thing that different groups see as oppressive that might be different. And in the case of a perceived oppressive authority, subversion or outright rebellion against that authority may be seen as justified. Dr. Hyde and his colleagues created the website yourmorals.org, and I'll link to that in the show notes. It's a nonprofit academic site that describes itself as a place where you can learn about your own morality, ethics, and or values. I highly recommend that you go there, create a login for yourself, and it gives you access to all kinds of quizzes that help you explore your own morality and see how it compares to others of different genders, political persuasions, that kind of thing. They do collect the information and use it for academic research purposes, but they certainly don't sell it. So, what they've come up with after many thousands of people have taken the test is that, generally speaking, 
People who self-report as liberals hold the first two foundations, the ones about caring and fairness, to be the most important ones, and they tend to score lower on the loyalty, authority, and sanctity foundations. So, on the topic of, say, gay marriage, they would tend to support it as a matter of compassion, fairness, and equality. Conservatives tend to score higher on the loyalty, authority, and sanctity foundations than liberals do, and slightly lower, but not that much lower, on the care and fairness foundations. They get more even scores across all of those foundations. But since authority, loyalty, and purity carry more importance to them, they may be less likely to support gay marriage because they see it as violating societal traditions and what they believe is the sanctity of the family structure. You can also use this to look at other issues like the Black Lives Matter movement and the issue of how police treat people differently depending on their race. Maybe you can start to see why people view it in such different ways. Those who hold care, fairness, and equality as the most important moral foundations would see it quite differently than those who hold authority, tradition, and the rule of law as more important. Now, of course, I'm speaking generally here, so values can certainly vary from person to person despite their political leanings. I always have my critical reasoning students take the Moral Foundations quiz on the yourmorals.org website, and then I have them discuss what they believe it says about them. Most of the time, it's pretty spot on, so I recommend that you give it a try. One of the benefits of it is that it really opens your eyes and you can start to see, if not agree with, why someone might hold a particular viewpoint about an issue. Another website that was kind of an outgrowth of that website is called civilpolitics.org. Many of the same people have contributed to both websites, and Civil Politics uses the data gained from your morals to help improve interaction between groups who disagree. They really have seen that understanding your own and others' moral foundations can lead to greater respect and more productive discussions on areas of disagreement. They talk specifically about what we can do to, number one, not fall into what I call hate traps, where the conversation just gets sucked down the blame drain, and number two, really seek to understand others' viewpoints, even if we disagree with them. So, according to them, we really need to have and maintain relationships with others who hold differing viewpoints. There's a lot of social science research about something called intergroup contact theory that says meeting and interacting with people you might see as a member of a group who thinks differently than you is an effective way to reduce tension and improve relationships. However, certain criteria have to be met during that contact for the outcome to be positive. The person initiating the intergroup contact has to be someone seen as a legitimate authority, like a church leader or a community leader or some other trusted person or entity. The people involved need to have a common goal and a sense of interdependence. In other words, they all want the same thing, in this case, to understand the way the other group thinks. And that all people involved feel like they have equal status, that no one thinks their opinions are superior to anyone else's. Another thing they talk about is cooperation versus competition. When we cooperate, find ways to work together, 
conflict tends to be reduced. One of the main causes of conflict is competition for resources, and this competition springs from the idea that all resources are limited, as in, there's only so much of everything to go around, so I need to make sure my group and I get our share. Frankly, while it's true that some things are finite, resources can be successfully shared if people work together. We need to find areas of agreement, find goals that everyone can work towards, and we need to recognize that it's not all about winner takes all. We also need to look at our feelings of disgust. Towards what or whom do we feel disgust? And why do we hold those feelings, particularly if it's towards certain people or groups? Disgust is one of the most powerful feelings that we might have towards others who are different from us in some way we determine to be important, like race or gender or political affiliation. Jonathan Haidt believes, and I agree, that the opposite of disgust is love. Is it possible to set aside feelings of disgust and try to love? Both are powerful emotions, and facts and reason do not generally work on them. The key to moving from disgust towards love is empathy, which is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Is it possible to feel empathy for someone whose views are the opposite of yours? Many of you might be thinking, nope, there is no way for me to feel empathy towards someone who is so wrong. I want you to know that not only is it possible, but it happens on a daily basis. There are a lot of organizations out there that are dedicated to bringing people from different walks of life and worldviews together, not to necessarily change anyone's mind. I'm going to introduce you to just a few of them, and you can find links to those websites in the show notes. The first great resource is one I mentioned before, civilpolitics.org. I do have to warn you that their website hasn't been updated since December of 2019, and my email to the executive director, Ravi Iyer, didn't result in the personal response I was hoping for, but he did write a new blog post apologizing for not engaging in depth more due to time and funding constraints. Yeah, I think that blog post was because of me. I feel special. That being said, this website has lots of great articles about improving intergroup relationships across moral divides, as well as links to other resources. I'll post a link to a helpful article that recommends improving our interpersonal relationships with others of differing worldviews and emphasizes cooperation over competition. But you should definitely browse through the site. You're going to find some very thought-provoking articles. Then there is livingroomconversations.org. The banner on their website states, Healing Divides Starts with Conversation. It's a nonprofit organization that was founded in 2010 with the goal of bridging the divides between people. The term living room is used as a metaphor to meet people where they're at, and that today our living rooms are anywhere we're connected to others. Their conversations can be face-to-face, -face, but these days are mostly done using Zoom, and interested parties can look to see what conversation topics are being discussed, and if they're interested in participating in the conversation, they can register, they'll get a Zoom link, 
and they can be assured they will definitely be a part of a diverse group of people from every walk of life. Or you can do an online training and host your own living room conversation. They have a list of topics, or you can even create your own. You do, however, have to follow their conversation structure, and everyone in the conversation has to agree to it as well, which is actually a really good thing because it keeps the dialogue on track and keeps it from getting out of hand. I'll post a link both to the Living Room Conversations website and to the conversation structure PDF. These conversations are not about persuading people. They are instead about understanding people. As a side note, I've been through the online training so I can incorporate these conversations into my classes. And then there's the Village Square. It's an organization that believes in the power of dialogue and disagreement and says that their mission to get people with disparate opinions and beliefs to sit down together is both impossible and mandatory. They create civic connections through face-to-face and online meetings, and because they have chapters in different cities across the U.S., they talk about both local and national issues. They even have something called the Dinner Series, where participants attend a catered meal and talk about some pretty important things, although right now those dinners are on hold, but they look forward to starting them up as soon as they can. And they have the God Squad, a group of diverse religious leaders who lead discussions with people from opposing sides on, as they say, topics your mother told you not to discuss in polite company. Perhaps the best thing about this organization is that they totally understand how difficult it is to get people from different sides together to talk without animosity. They've learned a lot over the past decade, and here are a few things to consider. First, if you're a liberal who wants to start a dialogue with conservatives, you might want to consider working with willing local churches to find conservatives who truly want to have discussions. The Village Square has found that churches tend to have more street cred with many conservatives than the average town hall meeting does. Second, be careful with words that have a strong valence associated with your particular party or stance. This is hard because it's not what we're used to, but it's also important because you don't want the other side to feel as if they are left out of the conversation which they will if you're using words that don't fit with their particular viewpoint. The Village Square has come to realize that conservatives have felt left out for the past five decades, while they see liberal values as having won the culture wars during those 50 years, even though they believe that their ideas about authority, loyalty, and tradition are more important to a society. Whereas liberals tend to consider those particular foundations as far less important than caring and fairness. And I think that adds to the stereotype of liberals as weak and conservatives as cruel. In reality, though, all of those moral foundations are important. Liberals should not discount the importance of those strongly held conservative foundations because without them, we won't even have societies in which we could care for each other and make sure that people are treated fairly. Conversely, conservatives need to recognize that an emphasis on caring and fairness does not make someone weak. Without deeply held insights on all sides, which can help everyone to recognize their individual blind spots, our problems will never be solved. 
We need each other. We can either turn on each other or turn towards each other. So, how do we welcome people who hold an opposing viewpoint into our discussion? First of all, remember the principle of charity from Episode 4 and consider those people to be intelligent and well-meaning. Recognize that something called cultural cognition exists. That's our very human tendency that springs from our Loyalty Betrayal Foundation to shape our opinions to conform to the groups with which we most strongly identify. So while your first impulse may be to try to convince them of the error of their ways, all that will do is cause them to hunker down and refuse to budge. But the less threatened we feel, the more flexible our opinions become. So an environment of acceptance and curiosity is much more likely to result in a good outcome. Your main focus should be to understand, not to persuade. A Psychology Today article by David Ropiak says that the self-affirmation theory, which states that people are more likely to be open-minded if they feel good about themselves, is useful in these circumstances. According to him, you shouldn't start any potentially contentious discussion with the facts. Instead, you should ask the other person to tell you something good about themselves, and you should do the same. Start on a positive note, and what comes afterwards may be a conversation rather than a fight. And you also need to recognize that any arguments you provide will not be effective if you frame them in a way that would be persuasive to your side. I realize this seems counterintuitive, because your arguments make absolute sense to you, and it's easy to believe that anyone with two brain cells to rub together would see their obvious rightness. However, people who differ from you politically or socially are probably working from different moral foundations, so you need to frame your arguments around things that they think are important. So if you tend towards the conservative side, rather than building your arguments around the idea that something is your patriotic duty or its tradition or it's what the group would and should do, think about the things that would resonate more with the opposition. Frame the argument around issues of fairness, equity, caring, those kinds of things. This approach does take some careful thought and maybe some preparation beforehand. A really good thing to do might be to take a few of your closely held beliefs and try to figure out how to argue them in a way that would make sense to someone who holds the opposing view and is working from different moral foundations. To sum up, we are in the middle of a very contentious time in our history. It doesn't need to be this way. And you also don't need to give up your closely held beliefs in order to engage positively with others. Seeing how and why others think the way they do doesn't mean you've become disloyal to your side, and it's actually critical to moving our society forward. I really hope you check out all the links in the show notes and truly consider ways to reach out to people on all sides of an issue. I'll see you in Episode 6. Episode 6